Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on the show, shooting in ultraviolet, cameras with dueling LCDs, mega megapixels, and special guests Andy Anotko and Mark Silver, right here on This Week in Photography 103. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. And we've got a uh, little bit of the usual suspects and a brand new guest. Uh, our, our, first of all, we've got Aaron Mailer f- coming in uh, from Virginia. Hey, Aaron. Yeah. Hey, everybody. And, um, and uh, Aaron, how is it in, uh, in Virginia? It's uh, humid. Humid. <laughs> <laughs> Disgustingly humid. It, we're, we're getting a little bit of our normal August weather now, but I can't complain too much. It's been a much better year than, than most, summer-wise. That's great. And, uh, and our new guest, not a new guest for, for, the, for the Twit Network, but a new guest for This Week in Photography that we're very excited about is Andy Anatko. <laughs> hey, Andy. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad to be Mr. Excitement. I'm not exactly Wayne Newton, but I'll, I'll, I, can, I can take it. I can, I can get <laughs> this, this sort of pompadoury sort of thing going on. We're so excited. I can't believe this is the first time we've had you on. Me neither. I've been a fan of the show, and as as someone who I, I wouldn't, I'd be go, I'd be going too far to say that I participate in photography, but I do operate a camera successfully converting photons into JPEGs, which I then upload onto Flickr. So hopefully that <laughs> qualifies me to be part of the panel today. No, it's really, really great to have you, Andy. And uh, we just want to remind everybody that Twip, of course, is brought to you by Squarespace, um, squarespace.com, a fast and easy way to publish a high quality, uh, a high quality website or blog. Uh, for your free trial, 10% off your new account, uh, go to squarespace.com slash Twip. Make sure to go to slash Twip because you know, it makes us look cool. So uh, anyway, so make sure to check that out. We've got um, some news uh, coming up here. We've got a bela- – this is a discussion about – we didn't – we kind of missed this. Uh, and this was rem- – thank you, thank you to everyone on Twitter that reminded us uh, that we missed the discussion about the new Nikon D300S. Aaron, can you give us a little uh, update? I, I certainly can. I'm, I'm not quite sure how we missed this. Of course, as the producer, I will take full blame for that one. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's basically a refresh of the uh, D300, um, original D300. Uh, it's doing 720p HD video now. It's uh, up to 7 frames a second for continuous shooting, dual CF and SD cards. Um, coming in about uh, about $1,800. So, you know, kind of fits in the higher end of their line. Certainly not up there with the DX, but uh, still twelve. Uh, you know, with their entry level. It's still uh, twenty uh, or, or um, twelve megapixels. Uh, yeah, twelve point three megapixels. Right. So, uh, CMOS sensor, fifty one point autofocus. So, what we're really seeing here is a is a, an update. Not a. It's, this mm-hmm. is there's nothing necessarily revolutionary about uh, about this, other than it is a lot of new cool stuff. You yeah, know, it's a they're, they're adding video, right? Because the three hundred, the past three hundred did not have it, right? Right, right. Yeah, this is 720p HD. Um, right. Though I'm curious about the frame rate. I don't know that I've seen it mentioned I yet. believe it's 30 frames a second. Okay. Locked at 30? Yeah, I believe it's the 30 frames per second. And and I, after beating uh, beating up Canon a lot for the 30 frames per second, one of the things that I, I found when trying to bring 24 frames a second into iMovie was that iMovie 09 you know, won't accept that rate. 
<laughs> it needs 30 frames okay. a second. So, so there's actually uh, you know, a, one argument if people are just doing quick edits in something like iMovie and not going into Final Cut. Uh, to have that thirty frames a second, uh, and so you know, I'm, I'm, I have, uh, I've, you know, that that is my number one complaint about most of these cameras is that we're not getting the twenty four frames a second. Um, but um, but I think it, it sounds like they're they're moving forward. One of the things I love about the Nikon's that I wish I had on my Canon is the SD card. Yeah, makes me sad. Yeah, the dual sockets. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it looks like uh, it looks good. You know, I, I have to admit that I uh, probably the reason that I missed it is I spent as many people here listened. I spent about a year trying to figure out what I was going to buy. You know, there was right. back and forth and back and forth. And with the firmware update for the 5D, I kind of pulled the trigger on uh, on what I was going to buy. And uh, and then after that, I haven't paid much attention. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm going to, I'll pull my head back out in uh, in a year and a half. You know, 5D I, Mark II is, is still my destination yeah. at this point. So yeah, yeah, um, I'm sense. sure there'll be a new one as soon as I do it. So, Well, that's, you know, that's the way it is. So now, Andy, <laughs> what are you using as an SLR? Uh, I'm still sticking with the Nikon D80. Uh, it's the one I bought a couple years ago, about a month after it first came out. And I keep getting tempted by the D300. I was tempted by the D200. Every time, and the things that I envy most of all are uh, I, I love the, fl- the frames per second. I love the low light performance. Uh, but every time I think about that, I keep thinking about, okay, well, this is going to be like a thousand dollar, fifteen hundred dollar expense. Will it improve my personal photography by thousand, fifteen hundred bucks? And I keep thinking, uh, maybe not, considering that at the time I still had the same like, kit lens that it started off with. So I, I'm just I'm just a little bit intimidated by like the I, I, I'm happy straddling the line between professional and consumer SLRs, but I've just never been able to convince myself to go pro yet but i hope that day's coming soon yeah it's 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 one of those things that now i've, I've i think i've tuned my my uh camera i i handed handed it to my wife uh, uh, a week ago and she can't even i mean it's so tuned up for how it does focus and how it does you know you get so used to all these little features that uh, that i uh, she can't even use it anymore it's not like a snap a snap focus yeah. you know thing and well, i think that that's what you get used to uh you're needing but i don't i don't know if i take any better pictures with it <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost, it took me, even though the D80 was so much of a better camera, my, my day-to-day shooter was a very nice softball-sized Kodak, uh, extremely long-range zoom, like uh, a JPEG shooter. Uh, and after using that for three years, I just instinctively not only knew where all the controls were, not, not, not only did I know it so well that I didn't even have to look down to say, okay, uh, I want uh, to pop uh, one, more, one extra stop for the flash, uh, desaturate the background by two stops, and then, boom, I'm up taking the picture. But also, it's that ability where you know that this is not a situation that this camera handles well, so I'm going to treat this situation a little bit specially. So I, I think I was taking awful pictures with the D80 for the first two months. That I was, I was saying, if I had my, my dinky little $320 point-and-shoot from Kodak with me right now, I'd be taking so much better pictures. But I, I, always, I, I at least love when new cameras come out because I always know that there are lots of people who are going to be instantaneously dumping their D200s or their D300s. <laughs> but I'm like... Great! I'll, I'll th- thank you for taking the first thousand dollars for the depreciation off that frame. I'll <laughs> I'll just swoop in like a vulture and buy it for seven hundred bucks. You know, I used to I used to work for someone who was very very wealthy, and um, their kids used to uh, throw a lot of stuff away. And the best part was we used to take it to the trash dump. And uh, yeah, I ended up with a lot of cool stuff. That's oh all God! I say. I, can I? I'm going to tell you a horror story that will curdle your blood. I was I was working in a I was working at like a New England chain of like consumer electronics stores uh, called Leechmere. A lot of people in New England will, will suddenly light up at that name. 
And Polaroid was doing a promotion where to get people to buy Polaroid cameras, they would give you something like 50 bucks off any trade-in for any camera. And most people were smart enough to say, gee, Leishmiel sells these crappy little you know, 110 cartridge cameras for $5. I'll buy one of those and take the $45 bonus. But there was a there was a but but some people were stupid and would bring in these great cameras and I'd be I'd <laughs> right. be on my break going through like like the back warehouse of the store with this literally this like cubic yard of just is that a Nikon F one I think that's a Nikon <laughs> F one like oh my god that's a Mamiya one twenty roll fill oh my that they got god. they got from their you know as an inheritance from their uncle and they don't know what it I is and they, oh I just haven't I don't go out so much since I busted my hip and you know I I just don't never learn how to work the ding dang thing and <laughs> so imagine this promotion went on for thirty days and imagine me just begging the manager of the photo department saying I will buy ten cameras put them in the boxes let me take five. Five of these cameras back with me, and, and uh, typical middle manager is like, "Oh, I don't know. I know that no one will tell the difference, and Polaroid doesn't even care." But I know it's so much easier for me to give them. Than, and uh, boy, I was I was sick for days thinking about all those great cameras. <laughs> so also, <laughs> that's great. Also in the news, uh, the uh, Samsung releases the first compact uh, with a front and a back. This is right, a front and a back LCD. So there's you know. It's in the front, and it's in the back. So, was, sorry, what did you say? Oh no, I'm sorry. I was just, I was just rea- reacting the same way I did when I first read about this. That is a hot, hot feature. I can't believe that Samsung's the first people to actually be s- silly enough to do it. I know it is. You know, at first I looked at it and I was like, "Really? Is what were you, you know like you, people are really going to buy one with a front LCD?" And then I thought about all of the photos that I've been trying to, you know, right take like that, and I realized that it, eh, it might not be such a bad idea. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, Say, how does that compare just to the swivel? You know, the swivel displays. I mean, my, all of my earlier Canon power shots all had a nice display, kind of like a camcorder that could swivel around to the front. It would flip the image when it was upside down. I think that type of thing. And you know, for I, that I think same that, purpose. I think you could do the swivel, but I think that this is more compact. I think that's the point, is this one's like True. one that you fit in your. This is the one that you take to the wedding. And you fit mm-hmm. it in your little your, your pocket, and you can pull it out right. and say, "Hey, let's take a picture together." And you can actually see, you know, it's not the top; it, it doesn't get clipped right here, you know, like right. right above your mouth or right below your eyes, or you know, all the things that happen when you. And, and the only person that I've ever seen that I mean, I'm I'm okay at it. Like, hey, let's take a picture together. The master mm-hmm. of that is the only person that I know that doesn't need this is Justine Ezrick, who's, who's actually probably the person that would get this, um, just so right. she had it. But she. I've never seen anyone able to frame herself in a camera where she can't see what's going on better than than I just. They could take the Treo approach and put the little, you know, the little disc, little silver disc above the camera, you know, that you use. Most people never realize that's what that was for if they owned a Treo. I didn't realize that either. There's and there's some yeah yeah, great little pieces. Now, Andy, do you think this is something that uh, that you'd like to see in more cameras? Definitely, especially in that sort of form factor. I think people forget that when you're charging, when we're buying like a consumer pocket camera, you really want these fun convenience features. Uh, and I, I do miss the, the swivel out uh, LCD because it's not only just for taking your own self portraits, but also you're at the parade. You just need to hold the camera up and just pray that you got something, uh, something, uh, something usable. Um, I think it's a great idea because it doesn't compromise the size and the shape of the device. Also, it's one uh, or two fewer failure points for the design of the hardware. Uh, but I, I I love the feature, but I also love the fact that they're 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 starting to think again. Re- remember the first couple of years, the first three four years of digital cameras, where 
suddenly they were freed from the constraint of we need to have a lens. There are physics, there are optics we cannot get around. We need to have a box that's inside, like that's this shape. We need to have a lens here. We need to have a film plane that's right behind it. Right. We cannot make. We need to have a, a roll of un, unspent film and a roll of done film. So we cannot make a camera that's not that shape. For a while there, they thought, well, no, now we can make it look like a squirt gun if that's going to be a more more convenient way to make a digital camera. And now they've sort of gotten back into the, the phase of, well, it has to be a boring cigarette box, put an LCD in the back, put a lens over there, put a flash there, we're done. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that we're slowly moving into this point where cameras are moving away from their past. You know, one of the things that we, uh, when we, when we look at what uh, you know where we were before. It, it, like when we start, looked at film, film was they shot, they started shooting movies of stage stuff, and then you know we ended up in the Matrix. You know where, where we suddenly, you know, we're, we're, we're the camera and time and everything else aren't even connected anymore. You know, and those are the things that I think with a lot of these cameras, we're finally really moving along, moving away from uh, a lot of those limitations, and um, it's pretty exciting. Speaking of moving away, uh, the uh, have you seen this, Aaron? Can you give us a little information about? Um, this invisible flash. Sure, this uh, came through our um, our uh, suggestions from our listeners. Essentially, it's the invisible flash sheds new light on photography in the dark. Actually, was the headline in the article that we worked from. Um, it's a work in progress. This is definitely not a commercial product. It's kind of a do-it-yourself type of thing. Uh, there's a couple of guys uh, that are experimenting with this. But uh, what they're doing is they're using a uh, Fuji IS Pro, uh, which uh, has the ability to, to remove the IR block. Um, a lot of uh, cameras to deal with chromatic aberrations and you know some of that little fringing that you get sometimes uh, in your images around high contrast points. They have what's called an IR cut filter in it, um, which helps you know filter out IR, essentially. What they're doing is taking that, a Nikon SB Flash, um, uh, modifying that as well, uh, you put it all together. What it comes down to is that you you get a infrared, or in this case, an ultraviolet and IR flash uh, that illuminates the picture. Of course, that's all outside of the spectrum of what your eyes see. So they're essentially taking flash photography with no flash, um, and then they're taking kind of a uh, kind of a paparazzi approach here. That you know, taking pictures of celebrities, you got the flashes going off and so on. You could do the same thing now with this type of camera with no visible flash. So they don't, they're not even aware that the picture is being taken. Sneaky. Yeah, definitely sneaky. But by definition, wouldn't those be black and white pictures? How could you could you get color with that sort of a rig? I you know I didn't actually see any sample images. Oddly they they enough, have a couple article. sample images on there. We'll have this on the sh- in the show they notes. Okay. They have a few of them. It looks like you know it's getting some of the color. You know, it's getting whatever color it can get in low light situations, and then adding that because mm-hmm. essentially what happens is, is most of the image that we're looking at uh, when we look at any of this stuff is uh, we're looking at the luminance information. So if you get some something that looks like luminance information and then you just wash color over it. What's amazing is how little color information you actually need for people to, um, uh, you know, get that it's a color image. Uh, you can right. take, you know, a great way to test this is go into Photoshop and convert an image to lab, which is conver- separates the, uh, the luminance from the co- color and take either the A and B channel and blur 20 pixels and it'll still look pretty normal. Yeah. But you blur the lab or the, uh, L, uh, channel by one pixel. And it looks blurred um, because that's what we're really paying attention to. So being able to get the luminance information, um, I think, is all they really need to make an image not look great. But especially if you're looking at paparazzi, it sounds like uh, or, or that kind of thing. Um, it sounds like it might be doable. So um, but we will it's see. It's kind of the, the flash night vision of still photography, I think, yeah. kind of what right. it was down to. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that, you know the celebrities, the celebrities or whoever's being shot. They come home, they notice. Wait a minute, I'm a little bit more tan than I was when I left. Ah, oh, dang it! Sometimes <laughs> those visible flashes all night. Ah, 
<laughs> the invisible fly. It, it really has um, an, an incredible opportunity uh, option. I mean, extreme a lot of mischief. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It's just yeah. that I, I, it, but it's also it's cool technology. What, what, what the back of the, ma- of the photo magazines used to refer to as inobtrusive wildlife photography. Right. You 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 will not startle away the deer with a big tripod or. Or with a visible flash. Right. Because that's exactly. what everyone's using it for in L.A. So um, so anyway, so we've got a couple, a couple, couple more pieces of news. Uh, but first of all, we want to remind everyone, we want to thank Squarespace.com. Uh, it, of course, is the way to build, host, and manage your website. It's an easy-to-use uh, UI for creating and managing a website or blog optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. Hundreds of design templates are there for you to choose from. Um, but you can also customize these designs, which I have heavily. Uh, or we have, uh, you know, this is, so that this week in photography, uh, Twip Log is is done in Squarespace, and also my my little blog, uh, Border Sack, is done, and they look completely different. And the reason is, and, and neither of them have a ton of code. I think that Aaron, I think you added a little bit more code to your Squarespace um, than than oh, I did, just a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, very little was necessary. I mean, there were so many resources already provided. Yeah, by and, Squarespace that. It didn't require me to add much at all. Yeah, and, and with mine, with BorderSAC, uh, the there's like four lines of, of custom code in the whole thing. And everything else is all just me figuring out how to use uh, repeatable textures. And uh, <laughs> and so it, it's really, really great. If, if you're thinking about, oh, I want to put, put up a blog, but also if I want to put up my company's website or if I want to put up uh, you know, my, you know, my organization's website, this is just so much easier than... Um, dealing with all the other stuff. And so you can go and get a free trial. You can try it on your own. You can just build it up, see if you like it, uh, you know, put something completely together uh, for free. If you go to squarespace.com slash TWIP, T-W-I-P, um, you don't need a credit card. You can just go ahead and start building. So just go ahead over there and, uh, and start building. And if you decide you want to purchase, you'll get 10% off if you use the offer code TWIP. So once again, go to squarespace.com slash TWIP and check it out. It's, it's awesome. That's all. I just uh, one thing. That I, they're they're teasing their iPhone app that's coming out fairly soon too. I'm not quite sure what all it's going to consist of, but I am eager to see that. Well, you know, I, I have iBlogger on it, and I can actually post from my iPhone seamlessly uh-huh. into my into my blog uh, without having to um, do anything else. So it's and it also works with Mars Edit. Uh, so all it's you know it's fully functional with all the standardized uh, tools. Uh, to updating, so uh, I, you know, can't recommend it more. It's just fantastic. Something that we obviously use a lot. So anyway, uh, just definitely check that out. Uh, also in the news, uh, this is a little bit of Apple news, but it affects us photographers. Uh, Apple adds anti-glare display option to the Mac Pro 15-inch. Aaron, are you excited? I'm quite excited. Of course, I, I when they took the uh, when they limited it only to the 17 inch for the uh, matte surfaces a while back, I was a little disappointed. And I'm still using uh, the pre unibody uh, 17 inch MacBook Pro with a matte screen, and I've been kind of holding on to it. But I'm glad the options back there because if I move to a 15 inch in the future, um, I'm personally I think I'm going to stick with a matte display. I, I like the glossies, but I just prefer the matte. Andy, are you a, are you a matte or glossy? Uh, I tend to like glossy. Um, the only downside to me is occasionally you have to adjust the angle when you're viewing someplace, and that's worth it for those deeper blacks, those punchier colors. It makes me think they make pictures a lot better than they actually are, so that's always valuable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say that my, my problem is I work in studios with lots of lights, or, I, or oftentimes I'm with my laptop outside, and I pretty much hate the glossy. You know? And yeah. uh, I thought I, I gave it a shot. And now I'm going to get uh, – Radtech has sent me a sticker that I haven't gotten around to putting, to, putting on. They, they sent me one to test, and I'm going to try putting on a, a big matte sticker onto mine, and, and, and I'm hoping that that will get to a point where I, I can handle it. Although I've been looking at the 13-inch now because we have one of the 13-inches in the office, and I really 
I really like it. Um, you know, I like the idea of being able to open my laptop in the plane. So, so anyway, uh, also in the news, uh, the future of Lightroom is, is uh, no power PC. Next release is Intel only. Are we surprised? No. No. No, not at all. Yeah, so if you, if you have a power PC, uh, I think the question is why? Why? I mean, you, you need to move on. So it's, it's, uh, it's time to pay. I mean, the Mac Mini is faster than your machine now. So uh, when you're thinking about how much everything's going to cost to replace and, and everything else, it's, it, it really is uh, it's over for the PowerPC. Uh, we loved it. I have m- many fond memories of my PowerPC rendering and everything, but it's gone. Uh, also, Leica S system specs have been revealed. Leica has revealed specifications and release date for its medium format S system. Get, okay, so this is a 37.5 megapixel Kodak CCD <laughs> sensor, which measures 45 by 30 <laughs> millimeters. Sensitivity is pegged at ISO 80 to 1250. And the camera will shoot up to 1.5 frames per second uh, for up to eight raw DNG files. Now, price, eh, you know, 30,000. Gigantic 30, bucks DNG files. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, when you, wanna ha- when you have to one-up everybody, that's... Uh, that's pretty good. Well, when, you, when you factor in the cost of the spy plane you'll be flying in to shoot those missile bases in Cuba, <laughs> it's a drop in the bucket, really. <laughs> what, what do people, again, speak, speaking to like a real, a real pro here, what do people use that high of a megapixel oh, count for? Billboards. Okay. So if you're shooting images for billboards or posters or, to be honest with you, art magazines. So when you look at, when you look at a magazine cover, uh, a Typical American magazine uh, is probably 100, uh, 133 line screen to 150 line screen. Art magazines might be 175, but when you start looking at uh, and, and the math of that typically is uh, you typically want about 1.5 to 1.6 um, pixels per inch uh, over you know multiplied to the the line screen. So if you've got and this is old stuff I I don't know if it's still the truth but it was when I was doing print. And so if you have a let's say you have uh 150 uh LPI you know, lines per inch, you'll want to make sure that you have at least 225 pixels per inch, which means you need that that would define how big the image need, needed to be um to not be soft uh on the on the piece. Now if you look at an art if you look at uh, a, an art ad or a poster or that uh, you really want to be razor sharp, uh, these cameras, theoretically, um, the cameras that we have, the 21 megapixels, even, even that uh, starts to soften up when you start stretching it out uh, over that. You're going to get a lower uh, pixel per inch. So, this, so for people who are doing big ad, ad work, um, that's, what, that's where these, these kind of things uh, really make sense. Uh, and, and that's really the only place that they really make sense. And, and the thing to remember about all of these these really high-end cameras is that they're great to rent. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to buy these cameras. In fact, I, I would never buy, well, I, maybe someday I'll buy one, but I would never consider buying one right now. I am interested. We've been looking at, at renting a phase one. We want to do some new texture map discs that we're working on. And we really want 6K images. Because uh, remember, remember, 37 megapixels isn't that much bigger when it comes to pixels. You know, it's be you know, 6,000 by 5,000 would be 30 megapixels. And so, you know, so it's not that many more pixels that are there, um, uh, you know, even though the the megapixel has gotten a lot bigger. So, um, so anyway, so that's the, uh, you know, I think that those are the places that that, that makes sense. Aaron, did I miss anything there? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I just, when it comes to medium format, I always think of the fashion photography world, which seems to be very, 
medium format oriented too. And the thing to remember is also not only you may not print it at that resolution, but the other thing you want to might, might want to do, especially when we're talking about fashion photography, is there might be a lot of Photoshop <laughs> work that needs to be done, which you'd like They're to very, do. Very, very verite over at Vogue, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's a lot of things in Photoshop that might might uh, need to be uh, adjusted uh, with your <laughs> fashion model. Uh, oftentimes, things are made smaller, other things are made uh, you know larger, and and many things are removed. Uh, and uh, and and all of that, you'd like to work at a higher resolution than you're actually printing at, because uh, you you know you want to give the artist as much they, as they can, because there's a lot of little details they have to get rid of. And it's also change. also nice to take a uh, take a very high megapixel crop out of an image as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For the crop to result in <laughs> you know being on par with everybody else's camera. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think with that is I think with this on this film back on a, on Mumia, it's more like instead of framing and composing, it's like just make sure you aim it at the correct side of the planet and then crop it down to the shot that you intended to take. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. So, <laughs> all right, so we uh, we're jumping into the poll here. Uh, we had last last couple of weeks. I think we were unsure of exactly what the last poll we had a little trouble with. So um, <laughs> the first question was, do you carry backup memory cards? Eighty nine percent said yes. Yes, they carry backup memory cards, and uh, only eleven uh, percent said that they do not, and uh, they they go commando. Uh, and uh, so anyway, so that's uh, <laughs> and they also carry backup memory cards. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Ooh, okay, so uh, now the uh, next question was: Do uh, do you ask permission uh, to photograph a stranger? Thirty four percent said yes. Uh, and 66% they said they snipe and run. Run very fast! Mm. You know, with the big cameras, uh, you know, you got to watch that. You can hurt your back. You know, that's, that's all I'm saying. So, uh, now, do, now, did we talk... So, what do you guys do when, you, when you're shooting strangers? Andy? Um, I have... Uh, I, I'd separate my legal right to take a picture of someone in public with what I feel to be, like, a moral right. That I, 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 I'm not comfortable in intruding in whatever moment someone might be having at a certain place i also don't want to make them feel uncomfortable about what's what's happening so i usually if if i can do it from a safe distance if i don't feel as though the picture i'm taking humiliates them in any way and i can do it without them knowing i'll do it that way if it's the sort of thing where i would like to have some sort of involvement then i will walk up and say excuse me do you mind i'll I'll, I'll actually say exactly here's why i want to take your picture it's like that is that is a really cool coat and believe it or not it actually integrates with the red of the background very nicely do you mind if i take your picture right. and if they say no, that's fine. That's, that's also the reason why I keep uh, Moo cards, that special Moo cards for like Andy Notko, writer, comma, photographer that has my, my Flickr account, my email address, my real name. Say, well, here's where you can look me up. Here's where you can uh, go get the picture. Uh, but I, I, I do know that there, there's a lot of variety on this topic. No, I, I, one of the things I'm actually really careful about is asking. I, I, ironically, the place that I ask the most if I can take the photo is uh, in Africa uh, because I always feel like no one does. You know? And so I'm always asking, can I take the photo? And oftentimes it's kind of like a sign language thing of can I take the photo? And usually there's some kind of trade that gets involved. And, and the biggest thing that I always have to be, uh, have grips for is that I'm going to be re- asked for the image. You know, someone's going to ask me for that image because that's the that might be the only image they have of their friends or yeah. their family. And you know, I went to a uh, one of the things that I would do is take when I was taking pictures in villages, I would take a Polaroid with me. So I would take photos with my SLR, and then I would take uh, Polaroids. And uh, but you had to be really careful. I was in one village that was larger than I realized, and uh, you know, I started taking pictures of the kids, you know, and taking a couple Polaroids and handing them out. And suddenly people started coming down from, you know, from all of these houses and, you know, you know, women were like putting up their hair and making sure that they look okay. <laughs> and, and suddenly I realized that I had gotten myself in yeah, a little too deep. 
And so I had to take a couple <laughs> group shots because I just didn't have any Polaroids left. And, uh, and so one of the things that, that now one, we're planning for the next trip in Africa is actually taking uh, a, one of these little Epson portable printers that you can plug into your car and uh, you know, just taking literally just a crazy amount of paper and so that we can take, you know, actually document you know, shooting, shooting strangers. So that's I, I think, and that's, I think Africa is probably the only place I shoot a lot of strangers. The only place I don't ask for permission is when we're driving because I shoot yeah. going on the road. I like uh, that's what I in Africa. Also, I, you know, also, also, there are there are places where I think there's an implied warranty of photographability. Uh, like again at a comic con, you know, you don't dress like a female version of Pikachu without the intention that someone's <laughs> going to picture. Although I was at, I was at a fourth of July. There's a, one of my favorite pictures on my Flickr feed is of this really really surly sixty year old guy dressed like a Halloween like Indian, like the whitest white guy you've ever seen, dressed in this this Halloween Indian Indian costume. He is liter- he was literally parading down the middle of Main Street during a Fourth of July parade, and he was upset with me that I'd taken his picture. That <laughs> like- was, was literally what I said, sir. You're literally parading down Main Street in a parade dressed in a ridiculous costume, and you don't want your picture taken? You went to the wrong place, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. So our next uh, question uh, is a uh, new poll uh, that we have here is, are you interested in learning strobist-style flash photography? Yes or no? So if, if you are, go up to TwipLog, or if you're not, either way, let us know. Go up to TwipLog.com and, uh, and, and uh, vote. And, and let us know. Coming up here, we have a, a guest, uh, Mark Silber, and uh, Frederick, who is not with us today. Uh, he had a little connection issue, but uh, uh, Fred uh, interviewed this uh, great educator and veteran photographer. So uh, we'll let Fred Frederick take it away. Okay, I'm here with Mark Silber. He's a good friend of mine and also a uh, photographer that's uh, based in the, the Bay Area here in Northern California. Mark has agreed to come on This Week in Photography and chat with us a little bit about kind of how he got started, um, what his photography is all about, and some of the other projects that he's working on. So thanks a lot for coming on This Week in Photography, Mark. Nice to join you, Frederick. My pleasure. Let, so let's kick it off. So uh, you know, I've been to your site, and I'm sure millions of people have been to your site and seen your work. What, what made you, in the beginning, just from the, the very beginning, decide, hey, uh, I want to be a photographer. Well, when you say beginning, that goes back many, many years. <laughs> so if we're going to begin at the beginning, it goes back to actually in the seventh grade uh, was a big turning point for me. That's when I learned to use the darkroom. Before that, you know, I was uh, taking my stuff down to the drugstore and shooting a uh, shooting a little brownie box camera, and, you know, the, the pictures weren't very satisfying. Mm-hmm. But when I learned about the magic of the darkroom, that you could go in there and do all these cool things, that's really when I became a photographer. And interestingly enough, I have sold work of photos that I shot in the 7th and the 8th grade. Really? To this day, yeah. <laughs> But that's where it, that's where it all began, and that uh, you know I became a, a pretty avid photographer early on. By the time I was uh, 16, 17, I was really shooting in earnest, and uh, I ended up going to the San Francisco Art Institute to polish things up. Yeah. So then, when you were when you were shooting in the sixth and seventh grade, were you uh, shooting in RAW? 
Raw. Yes, it was about as raw as you could get. <laughs> raw, raw negatives and raw chemistry, right? Yeah, it was raw. You know, I mean, it was like you. Uh, yeah, you know, I actually learned to mix my own uh, chemicals from formulas, which was kind of fun. Um, you know, you could go to the you could go to the local uh, Photoshop and buy cans of uh, different developers. Or you could get the recipe book from, say, Kodak and mix every single chemical in yourself. So I ended up doing that. Oh, you, you built your chemistry from, from scratch then? From scratch. And that was kind of cool. You know, that's like a ba- you know, that's like a cook going into the kitchen and cooking from scratch. Yeah, and, and about as unrepeatable too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I think back, you know, how, how different it is in our digital world once you get your photo process the way you want it and you dialed in you can make 10 million of the same image if you wanted to yeah and yeah in those days you really had to remember how you got that shot and how you developed it yeah so what kind of photography do you do for the folks that aren't familiar with you are you are you landscape portrait what what's your what's your niche well you know i'm primarily what you, you would call a fine art photographer who does environmental landscapes and uh, environmental portraits. What that means is you you shoot the person in their environment primarily. You know, I, I've, I've done my share of, of having people pose and so forth, but the, the type of uh, photography I've primarily done is you go out into the world and you shoot what you see is there without really changing it too much. Yeah, and where do you fall on that? Now, I've had several conversations on this week in photography and before about where the line is between when you what's too much in terms of manipulating an image. Where do you fall on that digitally? Yeah, digitally, you know, I'm. I guess I would consider myself a purist, but you know, you go back to what Ansel Adams said. He, you know, he has this interview where you know he was talking about his photography and somebody said you know you're really a realist mm-hmm. he said i'm not a realist you know the, these images don't look like this in nature you don't look up and see black skies like this and, <laughs> you, you know so he certainly manipulated those images to the degree that you could in the dark room i guess where i draw the line is somewhere in, you know when it becomes fantasy this is just me i'm not saying other styles of photography for other people, you know, it's it's sort of your own thing. But for me, I wouldn't, for instance, pull clouds out of one shot and put them in another. Right. Compositing, right? Compositing. I'm not adverse to taking telephone lines out or, you know, I had this beautiful shot in Paris of the end of a rainbow, you know, and unfortunately there was a garbage dumpster right in the corner of it. And I just couldn't live with that. So with Photoshop, that was too easy to get rid of. So I did. Oh, okay. So then, so but then that became a fine art piece after that, right? That became a fine art piece. Yeah, and the, the kind of the discussion that we have on this week in photography is, you know, there's fine art, or when you're creating something that is intended to be pleasurable for the audience's eye, and then there's like say photojournalism, which of course needs to be pleasurable, but at the same time you're documenting for historic or news purposes a particular event. In which case, all manipulation bets are off. But if you're if you're doing something for yourself or for art's sake, then you know, in my opinion, is you know, it's 
all pixels are born to be punished, and I've said that before. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll remember that. Born to be punished. Pixels were born to be punished. That's. Uh, I'm going to make a T-shirt that says that. <laughs> so then, let's talk a little bit about training. You're also an educator, and you've you've uh, you know you've you've taught classes, and you're doing a bunch of things right now that uh, continue to sort of push people forward in their their knowledge of photography and technique and that sort of thing. Talk about the kind of stuff that you've that you've done and, and are doing now. Yeah, I like teaching and I like teaching photography. I, I got my start teaching many years ago as a mountaineering instructor and uh, found that it was something I really enjoyed. And teaching photography is really satisfying because there's there's certain fundamentals that if you grasp them, you're going to come out with a much better photograph. It's not by accident that, you know, you, know, you look at great photographers, why, do, why does their photograph look that way? They have certain key things like framing, for instance. You know, they really understand the concept of framing. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I've, over the years, done a whole bunch of different workshops, different places, found them to be very well received. And um, in the process of doing that, I... I thought, you know, it would be really interesting. In fact, I'm halfway through a blog post about this. I thought it would be really interesting to hear from some of the masters themselves rather than me reading a quote from Ansel Adams. You know, wouldn't it be cool to see a video of Ansel talking about, you know, his most dominant concept, which is visualization? Yeah. And I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find anything. And... um, that kind of led me to do my photo show, which is basically uh, connecting the viewers directly with some really accomplished photographer. And my first guest, since I couldn't interview Ansel directly, um, I interviewed his son up in Yosemite, Michael Adams. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that interview, I was able to ask Michael questions that I would have loved to have asked Ansel. Now, Michael happens to know more about his dad than anyone in terms of, you know, what his thought process was and how he came to what he did in terms of his pictures. But the other thing that was super cool is that the family loaned me unreleased footage of Ansel Adams uh, talking about these key concepts. So what I really like to do is pick photographers' brains, just like you're doing with mine. That's why my head feels funny right now. (laughs) And get inside their head to, to see, okay, so here's Chase Jarvis. How does he get those amazing shots? You know, what does he look at? What is he, what's the one, two, three that he does before he even presses the shutter? And what happens after he presses the shutter? And what advice would he give to a new photographer? And those are the kinds of questions I like to go out and ask and document them as best as possible in action so it isn't just, uh, sit down kind of thing, but actually try to see them going out and and doing their their work. And where are you? So you you mentioned the show. So where is the show located, and how can people find it? They can most easily find it by going to my website, which is www dot silver, and that's with an s s i l b like boy e r studios dot tv. And that's where the shows are. They will uh, very soon be on SanDisk TV, um, but they can find them on SilverStudios.tv. My, by the way, my 
my photography site, if people want to actually look at my work and, and read something about me, is silverstudios.com. So .tv is the video and .com is the still photography. Excellent. Very cool. And you're, you're, are you on Twitter and, and doing all that social media type stuff as well? I am. I'm Mar- at Mark Silver. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter and I'm on FriendFeed. You're all over the place. I have a feeling that, that the fact that you're all over the place in social media has something to do with Robert Scoble. You know, it has something to do with Scoble and Thomas Hawk and Guy Kawasaki, these, these, these guys that I know. Yep. Um, in fact, I did a little interview with Scoble about that, and I asked him, okay, so how can a photographer use social media? And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. You just get a presence, and you keep putting your, your message out, and, you know, you just do your thing. Yeah. Yep. And what not to turn this into a Scoble interview, but he you you worked pretty closely with him for a while and he's on to other projects now. What's what's he what is he working on now? He's got a new site, right? Yeah, he's got a, a show called Building 43, which is uh, from what I can see is going back to kind of his roots when he was at uh, Microsoft doing Channel 9 yep. and going out. You know, Scoble's basically been following the tech scene for years. And, and going out and doing interviews with the movers and shakers in, in the tech world. But he's also an avid photographer, and that's how we met. He used to go out on photo walks. So he asked me to go out on a photo walk, and I essentially gave my workshop. It was a, a one-hour photo walk, and I gave my workshop. But what was cool about it was that we went to a ranch up in the hills above Palo Alto, that I was very familiar with because I, I used to live there. I was actually the caretaker there in my teens. Oh, wow. So I shot a lot of photographs there. <laughs> so it was kind of a nice backdrop because I knew some of the cool spots. And it was great in terms of illustrating what I was talking about. So that was my very, very first video shoot. Um, and it worked really well. They ended up with two versions. One was 60 minutes, and then Rocky edited it down to about six minutes. And so somebody, and that fact, that's still on my site. Somebody could watch that in five or six minutes and get five or six tips and learn something from it and go out and take better shots. Wow. And you've been an educator ever since, right? I have. And, yeah. and I find, you know, uh, Christmas, Chris over at Smug Mug said to me, I, I did some... Uh, uh, workshops for them, and we had the, you know, standing room only. They were just jam packed in there. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, it's too bad that we didn't video that because what about all the other people all around the world that aren't seeing this thing? Yeah. You know, his his thing is instead of one to few, one you know, one to many. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, so that's kind of where I started looking at it in terms of really leveraging especially if I'm going to be bringing in people like, you know, Chase Jarvis and Ansel Adams and so forth, bring it to a big audience that lots of people can connect with. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to the This Week in Photography audience. It's been a pleasure. And again, you're an educator, so it's been an educational experience chatting with you. It's been great. It's always my pleasure to talk about photography, Frederick. (laughs) Great. Again, Mark Silver, uh, what's your URL real quick? It's silverstudios.tv, 
and silverstudios.com. All right, and on Twitter at, at Mark Silver. That's right. And it's M A R C, by the way, M- Silver. M A R C S I L B E R. Be like what you are. You All got right. it. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Okay. Thank you, Frederick. And there you go. So that's uh, once, once again, Mark Silver. You can get more information uh, at our uh, website at twiplog.com. Uh, we've got some show notes there and some links to, uh, to Mark's site. So uh, definitely check that out. And uh, now it's time for the listener questions. So um, the first one we're going to send to Aaron. And this is Low Light Blue Issues with an icon in a recent shoot. So this is from Nathan uh, Cashian. Uh, he said, I finished shooting over 2,000 images at a ballroom dance competition. Equipment was a Nikon D50 and D70, 50mm 1.8, uh, and a 70 to 200 uh, VRF 2.8. He said, he said, I had a, uh, a hell of a time getting good focus on most of the shots in this low-light situation. I had the camera set to ISO 800 or 1600 single-point autofocus. Uh, I, would, uh, I would adjust the select, selected focus point um, to be on the face in the frame and then reframe if necessary and shoot. Best results were around F4 at 100 and what hundredth. I can't tell if the problem is poor uh, focusing, too slow of a shutter speed, or a depth of field problem uh, from shooting too wide open uh, when the subject is up, up to uh, 100 feet away. Question. Uh, two questions. How can I tell the difference between a blurry photo, too slow a shutter speed, and a photo that is out of focus? Um, and he said, "Number." Uh, and he said, "Also, uh, what am I missing to get really sharp photos?" Aaron. Um, one thing I was kind of hoping uh, Fred or Steve would be us today, be with us today, because they know the uh, the Nikon equipment a lot better than I do. Um, and, and am I mistaken in thinking the VR is that uh, kind of like Canon's IS, the image yeah. stabilizer? Yeah. Okay, yeah, because he was asking about uh, the use of of the VR in here. One thing I just want to point out too, and, and I would assume this would be you know, absolutely true for the Nikon as well as Canon uses what's called IS or image stabilizer. Um, that's going to help you with a handheld shot and low light at a low shutter speed, the kind of thing where a natural camera shake is going to cause you problems. But it's not going to help you if you have moving subjects by any means. I mean, because you're still shooting at a low shutter speed, you're still shooting in low light. So that helps you in situations with, you know, with still objects or, you know, as subjects, but it's not going to do a whole lot of good, you know, if you have moving subjects, um, you know, in a low light or a low shutter speed situation. Uh, and his other question, too, about how can you tell the difference between a blurry photo uh, from too slow a shutter speed uh, versus being out of focus? And uh, to my eye, there's usually a fairly definite difference. I mean, too low of a shutter speed is frequently going to leave kind of a streaked appearance. Uh, to the movement. I mean, you're, you're, which sometimes you would even use on purpose, you know, in a creative shot if you wanted to emphasize motion, for instance, particularly if you can keep the, the front edge of the subject sharp with this, you know, with a streak uh, in there. But uh, whereas out of focus just tends to truly be, you know, truly out of focus, which I may well be at the moment too on video because my camera keeps, I have an autofocus webcam here and it's, I can see it moving in and out while I'm talking, so wish I could stop that. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there's definitely a sharpness, uh, an issue that you're going to see between a, a shot that's streaked from movement and uh, from too low of a shutter speed. So Andy, do you guys want to contribute to that at all? Andy, do you have any, any additions? Uh, the only additional thing to say is I have a lot of experience shooting Nikon, and uh, one thing I keep trying to remind myself is to trust the higher ISOs. Uh, I've been using digital cameras since the very first ones came out. I'm just sort of instinctively think that, well, no, don't shoot above 400. When you shoot above 400 ISO, it just gets unusable. It's a nice, it's a snapshot, but it's not a photograph. But in many, many situations, if there is real light in the uh, in the scene, 
800 ISO will work great in many situations. Even 1600 will work just great. And also remember that there are stops between those, those settings. So really, first solution, especially on a D50, is just try to train yourself to trust higher ISOs because that will solve just about every problem you have with shake and might even make that VR lens uh, not quite as important in your bags as it once was. I know right. for, for me, uh, what, one of the things that I've done is uh, in low light, oftentimes I will go back to manual focus. Uh, because sometimes I find that it's just a lot easier for me to try to do it on my own than for me to uh, expect the autofocus to work. And this is on a Canon. Uh, so so I think that, that that is one of the things you, you sometimes have to back into if you're not getting good focus. The other thing is, is make sure to give your autofocus as much information as it can. Uh, my rule generally is that uh, I don't. Um, I find that the, the easiest thing to focus on, and the thing that you care about the most, is the inside of the eye. So, right, right on the very inside of the eye, that little, um, the little area where the tear duct is, tends to be where I aim when I'm when I'm focusing on someone um, to take a photo of them. And the reason for that primarily is because the only thing that really matters in a photo, in my opinion, of a person, is their eyes. Everything else can be out of focus, um, but that is important. And so, uh, and also, it turns out to be a really great. Uh, contrast point uh, oftentimes for the camera to to jump on. So a lot of times I'll I'll have it on spot focus and I'll nail that one little area and it tends to be, if it's going to focus, it's going to focus there. And uh, and so that's, you know, one of the things, you know, the rule of thumb, of course, with millimeters to, uh, you know, the general thumb, the rule of thumb, which is not completely accurate, is that you want you you know to be one whatever the millimeters is so you know if if you're going below if you're zoomed all the way in at 200 millimeters and and you're going slower than one two hundredth of a second you have to be really clear that you're going to be sitting really still uh you know and and things aren't moving too much because that's when things are going to start you're going to start noticing uh things moving now of course if things are moving in front of you uh you know that's going to get blurred uh depending on you know what whatever that is usually one two hundredth um if if there's a lot of action things kind of moving around Uh, i very commonly am shooting at one fiftieth one sixtieth um in low light and uh, and again uh, like Andy, I've learned to trust my ISO a little bit more, especially on these SLRs. Um, I don't trust them so much in the little hand cameras. Uh, you get a lot of grain, but with I know that with my, you know, with the Canon, you know, where I typically I'm not afraid to shoot 1600 and sometimes 3200 if I if I feel like I need to. I don't go much higher than that uh, on a Nikon. I I think you can go a little bit higher on on, on the higher uh, higher end Nikon's. You're gonna say, Aaron? Yes too about a uh, whether he was having a depth of field problem because the subjects were so far away and. Uh, uh, again, just kind of my my insight on that is that it, your depth of field issue, just because your subject is distant, isn't going to cause a problem unless they are distant outside of the sharp range of the depth of field and your focus point is wrong. So even having a distant subject with a shallow depth of field is going to be okay as long as the camera is truly auto-focusing on the subject itself. You know, foreground objects and background objects beyond them may be considerably blurred, which can also be a very tasteful effect in the shot. But uh, the distance is not going to be a depth of field problem unless your focus point is wrong and outside of the sharp, sharp area there. Great. Let me go to the next question here. We have, uh, this is a value comparison from Mark in Austria. And uh, Mark said, I have been shooting with an Icon SLR, uh, then Canon DSLR Rebels for years. Now I want to buy something high grade and shoot really big photos just for myself. Uh, I'm told that Nikons are now cheaper than Canons at an equivalent quality point. I'm not sure if this is true. What What's the Nikon equivalent of the 5D or 5D Mark II? Uh, is it a better value in your opinion? So I don't know. if this. I, I'll take the first swipe at this. Uh, 
I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I mean, there's the, the there's more expensive Nikon's than um, than Canons. There's less expensive ones. I think it, I think it really depends on what you're looking for. Uh, we bought the 5D Mark II as a video camera. Like really, it's primarily a video camera that happens to take photos as well. Uh, we found that it that with uh, some of the upgrades, we were able to use it for that, um, and that's one of the reasons that we you know kind of went down that path. Uh, I think that if you think you're going to primarily use it as a still camera, um, you know, I think that the the, the Nikon makes a, the, you know the, this new D300s is a really great camera. Uh, I think the equivalent of the Mark II would probably be the D700, but it doesn't include video yet. Yet is the key factor, and and uh, and and so I think that's the thing to also uh, take into account is that I wouldn't. Some some people may argue with me, but I I wouldn't buy a, a still only camera currently. Uh, I just don't, I got to tell you, I mean, I was out on the beach with my son shooting and swapping, you know, taking a 5D and swapping from shooting photo to shooting video in seconds. Uh, I I, I just wouldn't ever give that up again. And so, uh, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't buy a camera. So that for me, the D3X and the D700 are not options. Uh, And they are the high end cameras, I think, for, for Nikon. Uh, but they're not options for me because I just wouldn't buy a camera that doesn't shoot video. And I think that they will. Their their equivalent upgrade will next year, uh, maybe even later this year. So, but I just don't think that. I mean, I think that that is a is a key factor at this point. And some people may disagree with me, but it's just I think it's something that you're going to want. Um, mm-hmm. Aaron, um, I would just uh, to factor into that if you're making a decision on what road to go down, you know, look at your lens options and expenses as well. You know, because your your total DSLR cost is is going to be your lenses, and the lenses that you plan to buy, and then the more you buy, the you know, the more you're committing potentially financially speaking to a certain you know certain brand in that case because they don't intermix right now. So uh, so certainly look at what you might want to buy in terms of lenses with the camera, what you think you might want to buy in the future, and compare them if they're comparable. You know, then you're going to let other factors make the decision for you. Andy, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, definitely. I think that's it's sort of extension of what uh, what was just said. Uh, he the, in his email he just said that he wants to work in, with larger pictures. He needs to ask himself what is going to give him those results. This may not necessarily be to step up to the next pro level camera. Um, I, I think I think if you a lot of people are starting off with consumer level or prosumer level SLRs, the next step up from that is to buy your first really decent lens, like an f one eight prime uh, lens, fifty uh, millimeter prime lens, uh, which and learn how to shoot with that and learn how to fully exploit that. Then buy your first really good lighting rig or your first really good flash head uh, and learn how to use that. At that point, you will see such a marked improvement over what you can do as a photographer that you might decide that the next step on your path is, again, more decent lenses and better lighting rigs. Uh, I, I found that mo- when my desire to upgrade my gear usually comes from a frustration that I can't do something that I want to do, that there's an image I have in my head or I get my pictures back uh, after, dumping my, uh, after dumping my card. And I think, ah, dang it, I really wanted to have a more bokeh in the background there or I really wanted to get more pop in the, in the color there. Uh, and, again, it comes down to will buying myself a new $2,000 camera solve this problem or will my first really good flash head that costs maybe 400 bucks and a couple of months taking some really awful pictures while I figure it out, maybe that will actually cause me to be able to take the pictures I want to take. Yeah, and, and I definitely think that upgrading lenses before bodies, I think, makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. But make sure to, and I think, you know, a lot of us have had discussions about the difference between the, the DX lenses, so to speak, and the full frame. And I would only buy a full frame because I think that's where cameras are going to go. And I think that, that I think you limit your, your options, you know, and, and I would, I'm a, fan of kind of buying the high-end middle range of the range so like for instance i had a a 1.8 uh 
50 millimeter. It's a good lens, uh, but uh, the 1.4 is better. <laughs> but it, I don't want to buy a 1.2 because the 1.2 is like $1,800 uh, instead of $350 for the 1.4. And so that kind of, there's usually that middle of the road. There's one that's really inexpensive. There's one that's really, really, really expensive. And there's one in the middle. And that tends to be where I buy. Scott, Scott Bourne buys all the high end ones. Um, <laughs> so, but definitely I think upgra- upgrading glass makes a big difference. And now uh, we're going to jump into the picks of the week. And I'm going to throw the first one to Aaron. Um, mine's um, actually just a quick one here. Uh, rather than a product this week, I've, I've been hitting a lot of websites lately and for my picks. And uh, and I know we've mentioned the Big Picture blog before in general, but I just wanted to mention it again this week in relation to one particular set of pictures called More Robots, which I thought had some really entertaining images in it. So uh, we'll have uh, we'll have our our links there in the show notes. Great, and uh, Andy. Uh, just a just a quickie. It actually happens to tie in with some discussions we've been having earlier. Um, my pick is something I just bought about a couple of weeks ago, which is a battery grip uh, for my D80. This is something I've been wanting to get for a while, but always been thrown by the price of the official Nikon grip. So I finally sort of took a chance and said, "Well, you know what? You can get some like knockoff, some third party grips off of Amazon for sixty bucks. This one happens to be made by a company called Zykos, Z E I K O S, and it costs like sixty bucks. Uh, and I've used it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's doing the job that I wanted it to do. Uh, it, it's, it's, it serves two functions for me: one practi- one strategic, and one tactical. Uh, the tactical uh, advantage is that you know, oftentimes you grab your camera, you head out the door, then you realize that oh, Mister Brilliant Guy forgot to pop the battery in the charger, didn't he? So now he's basically took a, took a, a, a colorful object with him uh, to, to the street fair. Uh, with this one, you can always slap in uh, six, eight, six double A's uh, and be up and going. But my, the real purpose is that, again, when I'm, I love taking, taking photo walks. I love taking pictures of interesting things. I do occasionally like taking pictures of interesting people if, once again, I, I feel I can do so without ruining their day. And what I really, really want to do is I really want to have a camera that just simply screams out, I am not sneaking around taking pictures against people's will. I'm, this is as big and as impossible to to ignore as you can possibly get so clearly <laughs> clearly i'm not just one of the, one of these creeps it also has the the semi sneaky advantage in that i i just happen to notice that i i have a really good uh, pocket point and shoot that i usually carry with me and then of course sometimes i, I take this with me that uh, a camera like this a, a real look slr with a battery grip and a, and a flash head on it is the difference especially like at a, at a comic con or something is the difference between oh god get away from me and of course you can't take my picture you creep to oh let me pose hang on yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Is, is Build it be the paper? You, you, you honestly say no. It's not me. The paper. I'm just like a serious amateur. But yeah, here's my flicker. Here, by all means. Right. So that's so. So I do enjoy that. My my, fir- my first time out with the D80. With the first time I had my my first real digital SLR. I was at a skating rink and wondering why. Gee, everyone keeps me is wiping out like near the corner where I'm taking pictures. It was a while before I realized that they thought I was a press photographer and that's where they would try to do all their really tricky moves. They wanted to be nice. They wanted to be photographed <laughs> taking like a double Lutz axle. So right and. and- and, uh, so, and so you were just getting thing. great photos. I was getting great photos because people, <laughs> Exactly. Their insurance companies were very grateful for these pictures, let me tell you. <laughs> Most money ever made in one afternoon shooting. <laughs> so um, uh, my pick of the week, and, and this is one that I actually talked about on MacBreak uh, weekly, but I, I don't think there's a, a one-to-one crossover. And it's something that I just, uh, we were using it over the weekend, and, and it's just a silly little application. But uh, auto-stitch, have you, do you guys have auto-stitch on your, on your iPhone? Um, and the, oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it is, it is, it is the, it's just, it works so well. And, and the reason that I bring it up is because I really wish, uh, there was a non Photoshop. I mean, maybe someone can e- email me, uh, 
you know, or Twitter me or whatever. Uh, I don't. I have not found a non Photoshop solution uh, that is that works as well as uh, as this application on the iPhone uh, that that would be cheap and easy to use. And so what happens is is you take you literally you open up your uh, you take your phone and you just go to your camera and. And this is something that, that, you know, I think some of the Sony cameras have added, but you just, you know, you take a couple photos here. So I'm just simply turning the photo, turning the camera here. And one of the keys is turning the camera on its axis, not on your axis, which will reduce your um, uh, parallax. And, uh, and so anyway, so when you, uh, when you turn that and you go to auto stitch, I know you can't see this, but you simply grab, you go into your camera roll and you simply just click you just, I mean, really quickly, you just go boom, 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 and select the photos. It brings those photos in. You don't need to know anything about stitching. You don't need to know how this, is, how this works. You just simply say, uh, um, uh, you know, stitch. And this thing just stitches the greatest little pano- panoramas. Uh, Leo was posting them on his, uh, on his blog when he was in China. And uh, these are coming out. Now, they're a little rough on the outer edges. You need some kind of cropping tool to kind of crop them. And that's the one thing that I think is missing here. Um, but it is, uh, I just... I'm always flabbergasted by how well it works. My, I, I showed it um, to my daughter Hannah, who's been visiting over the uh, over the weekend, and, uh, and she was out there. I could see I, every time I, I I could see her camera turning, you know, like you know her, her turning her, you know, as we were on the one or we were in the city, and I knew that that she was using auto stitch. So it and by the way, it's not panorama; it's auto stitch, um, which is yeah. a uh, panorama uh, isn't as good. Auto stitch is the only one to get. I don't know whether to be thrilled or crushed by that actually because since i own a you know six hundred dollar piece of stitching software and a pano head for my <laughs> you know it's not the same photos and my fisheye lenses and it's not the same yeah. photos i'd love to see it as the same photos i still have i still i'm still glad that i have my uh my rigs and my lenses and, and everything else to shoot really really high resolution high-end uh panoramas uh but but being able to go out and shoot something on your iPhone, what I really want to see is someone build an application that's that easy, that is like fifty bucks or or whatever. On your your solution might be Photoshop Elements. Uh, that's my that's the. Does it have the auto stitching feature in it? It does have auto stitching built in with it, okay. and a whole bunch of really cool like magical features. I was giving a, a tutorial on it uh, during the Mac cruise, mm-hmm. and I had two. Oh wait, do that again moments and they're all based on built-in features and photoshop elements um there there are some third-party apps i've seen that i'm with you i've been i've just been really overwhelmed with what they do for the amount of money they charge for the app uh and so i I think of photoshop elements as a hundred dollar catch-all of of utilities it also has a really cool little version of photoshop built into it you know i i used to deride photoshop elements uh a lot because <laughs> i was a photoshop user and i'd look down on it and oh god they cut everything <laughs> that was useful out of it and my brother uh, just asked, how do I, you know, he, he's, he has a golf course and he's trying to, you know, build little ads and do little things. He's, he doesn't need all that work. And, yep. and, and when he said, I, I just need something that's so I can edit some photos uh, and put stuff together, I just said, you know, you should really just look at Elements. You know, Elements is going to do what you need. I got so much more respect for it over the past couple of months because I couldn't find – I was setting up a, my, my, my latest MacBook. I could not find my, my, my Photoshop uh, registration. I had the disk, but I could not find the registration code. So I've always been a fan, but I've never used it in day-to-day stuff. I wound up installing Photoshop Elements temporarily until I get this finished. And you know what? I'm not going to bother installing Photoshop, at least not, yeah. not on this machine, because yeah. everything that I need to do, which is – 
uh, the the 75% of features in Photoshop that most photo retouchers use, I've got. I've got also got Photoshop plugins. I also have a whole bunch of extraction tools uh, and composition tools that I don't have in Photoshop, or which would cost me another hundred dollar plugin. So right. I'm very very happy with it. it's it, it's better if you it's better if you're if you're a Windows user because the Windows version is always at least one generation ahead of the Mac version. But sure. I'm amazed that they they charge 99 bucks for 75% of what they're supposed to be charging 500 bucks for. It's great. So there's our indirect pick as well. Photoshop elements. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, coming up next, oh, by the way, I was someone on, on the IRC reminded me that the new update for AutoStitch does have cropping. So that's, uh, that's a, big, it's a big addition. Uh, coming up next week, we've got an interview with Jim Hyde, which uh, I'm very excited to hear. And uh, so that'll be, that'll be a lot of fun. There's nothing going on in between the weeks other than at Twiplog. We'll have some show notes and some other stuff going on up there. So make sure to check that out. Uh, Andy, uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find it my at my celestial waste. Find me at my celestial waste of bandwidth. C W O B dot com. That has links to my blog, links to my email, links to all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, Aaron, uh, where can people find you? You can find me uh, on Twitter as halfpress h a l f b r e s s, and on my blog halfpress dot com, which is painfully needing of an update. But um, I've actually gotten to be a photographer a little bit off and on the last couple of weeks in my crazy summer that's been focused elsewhere. So we'll try to update that soon. Thanks, Aaron, and uh, thanks, Andy. This is uh, This Week in Photography, and we're, uh, we're done. You can get that lens cap right off and get out there and start shooting.